Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, June 14th, 2021, and this is episode 22A. This week we're going to start things off with actually The Bad Batch, episode 7, which premiered, this will be the episode that premiered this past Friday on Disney+. Plus. Um, and then after that, we're going to go into the comic book pull list for the week when there is a lot, a lot of very great stuff to talk about. And I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, so then after that, if we have time, uh, this may be a short episode. It may be a long one. I, I'm not really sure how long I'm going to ramble on things <laughs> for yet, but we'll see. Uh, if we have time at the end, I may talk a little bit about the Avengers Campus reviews. Um, Avengers Campus is open at Disneyland now. Or Disney's California Adventure, rather, I believe. Ooh. Yes, it is Disney's California Adventure, and then they have the Star Wars one is at Disneyland. Um, I had talked a little bit about what was going to be there, so now it's open. Um, and I do follow on social media a few ladies who are like Disney moms and stuff. I try to follow the non-problematic ones. Um, <laughs> if those exist. Um and, uh, so if you're curious about that, if we have time, I might talk a little bit about that at the end, because there isn't really anything else in the way of news this week. I keep going over my notes and things. I know E3 was, uh, this past weekend. I didn't really have too much to pay attention to. The only thing that I really, uh, care about in that whole realm would be Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, and we've already kind of seen what they have coming for that, so... Um, and if, if you were looking at all for my Wonder Woman Mezco review, I had said on the last episode that it was going to be up this weekend, and I obviously did not get that up on my YouTube page yet, uh, because I just kept having too many interruptions when I was trying to film it this past Saturday, uh, or this past weekend, really. So I'm going to have it up at the very latest by this coming weekend. There hopefully will be no reason uh, that I won't have it up on Wednesday, which is what I'm kind of planning right now, but just in case... <laughs> We're going to go with this weekend if, at the very latest. Um, and I will, of course, update that on Friday if you're looking for the My Mezco Wonder Woman review. I will tell you, though, she is fabulous. This is the last Wonder Woman I will probably ever need. Um, she She's awesome. So I'm excited to share that video with you whenever I'm able to actually get it finished up. Um so we'll go ahead and get started here. Uh, we're talking first, of course, about the Bad Batch and then going into the comic pull list and then possibly Avengers Campus. So um, I guess before I get started, I've been doing my my intro or my outro at the beginning with all of my socials and things. So if you want to find me on social media or online, I have a website, which is, of course, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have that Weebly extension in there or you will not get there. Because uh, I don't pay for it, uh, and then there, I, I, uh, you can find this podcast anywhere podcast streams except Pandora, and that includes YouTube. As you may have gathered, I do action figure reviews and stuff on YouTube as well. Not very often, um, as not nearly as often as I used to, because I'm not um, a slut for Hasbro the way that I kind of used to be. I am now kind of a Hasbro hater, so. <laughs> the toy reviews are, are few and far between, but they are on there, um, and I have a lot of fun with them. And then if you would like to find me on social media, uh, I am on Instagram at Anna with the Comics, and I am on, uh, Twitter at Savage She Geek, because Sensational was too many letters. Um, so go ahead and check those out. I also have a TikTok, but it's not really something that I use, so <laughs> there won't be much point to that. Um, uh, but anyway, let's go ahead and get started with our Bad Batch Episode 7 discussion. 
There was a lot to enjoy about this episode for a lot of reasons. Um, Bad Batch episode 7. And there was a lot of talk about inhibitor chips right from the get-go. This is pretty much what the whole episode was about. Was about the clone inhibitor chips and the various... Oh, my cat's trying to get attention. uh, And the various things that they affect... Uh, and kind of what's going to end up happening with the inhibitor chips. Um, and we know, obviously, that Wrecker is clearly becoming a lot more affected by his. Uh, he's getting headaches and he's getting, like, raging out and sometimes and stuff. Um, so it's kind of showing, eventually, what is going to happen with the others, too, if this is a problem, if this is um, a problem that they do not solve very quickly. Uh, and, of course, which is one of the very exciting parts about this episode, we have the return of Captain Rex. Captain Rex, of course, is... um, I imagine everyone who's watching The Bad Batch watched The Clone Wars, right? Um, But, you know, Captain Rex is one of the... Kind of a main character from the... I would call him a main character from The Clone Wars show. I I think that's safe to say. Um, No live action of him yet. He is a good friend of Ahsoka. Um, So we kind of of figured that Rex would be showing up in the show, obviously. He's older than these clones. He's a, a kind of original generation one, so... Um, we, we kind of knew he was going to be coming, we weren't sure how that would tie into it, and this was it. So this is really fun. Uh, he was apparently called in by the Martez sisters after they encountered Omega and the Bad Batch in the last episode, if you remember, and they are, uh, they're friends with Ahsoka, um, which is kind of how we met them initially, was their first interaction with Ahsoka at the last season of, Cl- uh, uh, yes, of last season of the Clone Wars. Um, but there's no, there's no mention of Ahsoka in this episode at all, although we can pretty much imagine, um, that Rex has been in contact with her if he knows and is familiar with the Martez sisters and they are familiar with him. That is probably uh, a connecting link between the two of them. Um, so Rex is pretty much meant to be the character who comes in now to help kind of fix the situation that they're in with Wrecker, uh, and the inhibitor chips. Uh, and Rex meeting Omega was really fun too, obviously, because he's never seen a female clone before. This is unheard of. Um, and she, of course, being so young um, and so different from the other clones, she thinks it's kind of funny um, or I suppose interesting that he is a first generation clone, much older than the batch and especially much older than herself. Um, and it, there was some discussion in our household after watching this episode about the aging process of clones, because we know that they have kind of, um, the inhibitor chip, isn't it the inhibitor chip that also affects their aging? And when they get to a point where they are getting old, you know, excuse me, too old to be, um, involved with the fighting and stuff, they just kind of age them off and let them die. Right. I, um, so the taking the inhibitor chips out would fix that. Is that right? Um, in any case, <laughs> uh, the the uh, Rex and the Batch, they're t- together. They're able to, you know, steal standard stuff for the show at this point. They're able to steal what they need uh, to fix the situation in this, you know, point. At this point, it's Wrecker, uh, who is the situation. Uh, but they, you know, they aren't able to get to him and save him before his chip does finally trigger and his Order 66 command turns on fully, turning him on his own team and brothers, really. Um, it was, it was very wild to see him go full, like, Palpatine bootlicker on, on his brothers like this, calling the other batch, uh, you know, batchers, I guess, uh, traitors and scum and all kinds of horrible things like that. 
Um, and, and it makes me think, God, how different their world would be if they were just regular run-of-the-mill clones. So lucky for them, you know, they aren't. Um, and Wrecker, you know, he even goes after Omega while he's having this moment. <laughs> while w- with his with this chip triggered, he goes after Omega at one point, not recognizing her in the slightest, it would seem, as she, like, pleads and tries to, to remind him of their friendship, because they've obviously developed a really strong friendship already so far in the show. Uh, and things, you know, things could have gotten really dark here really fast. And I suppose in a way they, they, they did because seeing him like that was, was a bit, a bit terrifying, honestly. And I'm sure from Omega's perspective, it would have, you know, a lot worse. And this does bring up a lot of feelings in Omega about being afraid of being left alone. Um, and that's understandable, especially coming from a kid who's been taken, albeit willingly, very willingly from the one place that she's ever known and the only people that she's ever known into the incredibly vast wilderness of outer space. So of course it's going to be, she's going to have terrified thoughts. Um, and that's, that's going to come out. I'm glad that they're, they're showing that. Um, it was also really good to hear that Ricker after this whole kind of thing goes down, Wrecker actually was fighting the chip, the inhibitor chip, the whole time while he was having that kind of fight with the Batch and trying to kill them, I guess. Uh, even if it didn't look like that, he, he said later he was trying to fight it the whole time. And that really makes me think of all the other clones, um, especially the ones who were closer to Jedi uh, and closer to like Ahsoka um, and things like that. All the other clones who succumb to Order 66, but might have been aware the entire time, trying not to kill their friends and fellow soldiers and Jedis, but completely unable to stop. Just aware, trying not to, but unable to overpower the Orders. Like, damn, that is, that that did get a little bit dark. Once you start thinking about it like that, like if you think about that scene in the Clone Wars when Order 66 happens... Oh my! Like they they showed it at the beginning of this show, right? Because they showed it with uh, was it Kanan? Is that right? It was Kanan. Yeah, I think that's who it was. Um, that it's it's the relationships they had really great relationships. They were soldiers in arms, and then all of a sudden this, and so knowing. Oh my gosh! I just can't get over the fact Wrecker being. Com- him saying that it just makes it just completely changes the it makes it so much sadder that they had to kill their jedi and the jedi had to you know i'm sure in the process kill a number of them um and it was all they were aware that is that is especially the ones closer to them um yeah that's that's rough <laughs> um and also, so obviously everything in the end, you know, Rucker's fine. He got it fixed. They're all good. Uh, we still haven't seen, though, what Crosshair and his side of the universe really are up to. Um, but at least now we know the inhibitor chips won't be something that Crosshair and the rest of them can use against the Batch. Um, and maybe, you know, they'll even be able to get his uh, implant thing fixed as well. Instead of, you know, him just being an empire lackey to the day he dies, that would be, you know, sad also. Um, There's also definitely, I wouldn't mention, definitely something up with this Sid character, who is the, like, I suppose you'd call her the black market dealer. 
uh, that the batch has been getting like their information and jobs for pay and stuff from while they're kind of on this way station. Um, she is getting trickier and trickier with them. Um, she's trying to pull one over on them a little bit too often. And all that tells me is that her alliances are with whoever has the biggest wallet and the most power, which makes her prime material for the Empire to use as a spy. And that is not good news for the Batch and Omega. So something tells me that uh, when Crosshair does, and everybody he's, you know, with, uh, when they do pop up, it's it might be because of Sid. Uh, she does not seem like a very trustworthy character um, as we go along further and further. So we'll keep an eye on her. Uh, and then, of course, there is a new episode of The Bad Batch. Episode 8 will be coming out on Disney Plus this coming Friday. The... That's Saturday, 18th. Um, so go ahead and watch that, and I will talk about it on next week's 23A episode. I really enjoy this show. Um, just as, like, as an overall like review point, I really enjoy this show. It's really fun. I kind of was surprised, to be completely honest. I was a little bit surprised at the Disney Investor Day, I believe it was, when they announced it, because... This was, um, you know, they were just one episode of The Clone Wars... And that was it. Um, and I, I knew that they caught on and people loved them and everything. Um, but I was really surprised that they were going to do a whole spinoff show. And I am very happy to say, completely honestly, that this makes this show, The Bad Batch, fits perfectly in with their Star Wars universe the way that they've built it. Screw the Skywalkers. You don't need them in this stuff to make it Star Wars. And this show is only proving that more and more. And it really just makes me really excited for the upcoming Disney Plus Star Wars stuff that we're going to be getting. You know, there's Rangers of the Republic. I'm pretty sure we're still getting. Um, I hope that they put... What's his name? Um, the guy who played Appa on Kim's Convenience. Um, he was in Mandalorian, right? I would really love for him to be in Rangers of the Republic. I think they said he was going to be in it. I don't know. We'll see. Um... Uh, there's a bunch of other, there's a couple other shows for Star Wars that are going to be coming out, I believe, including a Taika Waititi movie. Um, but there's, there's so much good stuff to look forward to in Star Wars. I know people, you know, the fandom menace and everything, but I just, I appreciate, um, everything that is coming out good, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I would say the Bad Batch is definitely on that realm of good things. Um, so I'm excited for the future of Star Wars. I just felt like getting a little nerdy about that for a second because um, there is so much Star Wars hate in the universe. <laughs> Let's be honest. None of a single one of the movies is absolutely brilliant. None of them are that good. <laughs> They're fun. Some of them are less fun. Some of them kind of suck. And anything Star Wars happening ever is existing in any way is fan service. So please... Don't try and tell me something is fan service. Literally everything in nerd media, geek culture period, existing at all is fan service. <laughs> I just like Star Wars. I, um, obviously, there has its flaws. Um, but I'm really happy with The Bad Batch. This has been fun to talk about. I don't know why I've rambled on for like two minutes about just nothing really here. But let's move on to the comic book pull list. Um, 
we'll do that. Uh, this pull list this week is really cool. Um, I have a lot of things to talk about on it. Um, I kind of have things, you know, it's, I tried to get the, my list of comics I want to talk about in order of what I'm most excited for to least, but that's not quite right. Um, so it's just kind of like more or less like that. I don't know what my point with that was. It's, it's been, a, it's been a morning. Um, so we're going to start things off here. Uh, I, let's go through the pull list just so you know, you know, what to expect here. How about that? Well, we'll list things off. We have Demon Days Mariko number one, Planet Size X-Men number one, Luna number five of five, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow number one of, I think, nine, Sonya Versal number five, uh, Static Season one number one, Time Before Time number two, Silver City number two, New Mutants number 19, X-Corp number two, The Many Deaths of Layla Star number three, The Mal the Mighty Valkyries number three, Home number three, The Silver Coin number three, Seven Swords number one, Catwoman 32, Venom 200 slash 35, Captain America Annual number one, Fantastic Four number 33, Stillwater number eight, and Nightwing number 81. I should have timed how long it took me to get through that list. I don't know how many there are here. Um, oh, there is an easy way for me to find out really quick. If I highlight all the text and then change this to numbering, there's 21 comics, just in case you were wondering. Um, that's a lot. I, uh, I think this is actually most of my comic book pull list for this week, if not all of it. I usually leave some stuff out because of various reasons I'm behind on it or I'm saving it in chunks, but I actually do have a couple of those things on here. Um, and we'll get to those. Those are all towards the end, actually. Um, so I guess you could say that this is like my most actively read stuff down to my least actively. No, that's not. It's just going to be a list. Um, so let's go ahead and actually get started with it. Kicking things off with Demon Days Mariko number one. This is, of course, the second Demon Days comic out of what I think will be five by Peach Momoko. She is drawing. She is writing. She is inking. She is coloring. Um, I don't think she's doing lettering and she's writing it as far as I have been able to gather. She's writing it in Japanese and then somebody is translating it for Marvel. Um, if you have any kind of insider knowledge on that, I would love to know, because if I recall, uh, the first Demon Days, the X-Men number one, it, I believe it said that there, it said translation by, or English translation by, or something like that in the credits. Um, and of course we know that Peach Romoko is Japanese and she doesn't actually speak too much English as far as I can tell. Um, I know that when she does her live videos to show her art process, she has a translator there with her. Um, so my assumption here is that she writes it in Japanese and then it is translated into English, which to my perspective is really cool because that, this is like, this is Marvel testing the waters, I'm hoping, in getting into more manga-like stuff. I know they've done like Marvel anime style things in the past for, for cart, you know, animated stuff on TVs and things, um, but... As far as comics go, I would love to see them kind of start wiggling in that direction, especially with their character, well, their creators who are, you know, Asian. We have so, so many of them, especially Filipino creators. I've been noticing more and more. There are so many Asian creators and artists. I would love to, um, especially not, not, I'm not talking really necessarily Asian American, but I'm not actually like from these places. And I would love to see them like Peach Romoko bringing in. Um, the, the style that they were kind of brought up to learn 
um, into comics and stuff. I don't know if any of that, what I'm saying, makes sense, but I, I'm really excited uh, for what this being a success could potentially mean for the future of um, how how comics and how big two comics, you know, possibly are going to be seen and written in the future. In any case, I know when I discussed after, it was three months ago now, after Demon Day's X-Men number one came out, we discussed how it was somewhat unclear if these stories are going to be completely connected or just loosely connected, it was clear they were going to be connected in some way. Uh, why would they have Demon Days as the header for all of them if they weren't? Um, but now we're kind of getting a little bit more insight that these are probably going to be quite connected. Um, as in the stories, we're probably going to see characters from the X-Men one, and we're probably going to see characters from uh, these first two across the other three, because it is going to be five. And they are coming out every three months. It hasn't just been a really long month. Um, and we also have, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody here, but we also have uh, the next uh, the next iteration of Demon Days. If you would like to know what that is, if you would not, you know, turn this off for a second, it is going to be called Cursed Web. Um, and what I can tell you about that is that it has Mystique on the cover. Um, and potentially Silk. Um, Peach Moko did post a teaser of the, um, I guess, a character who is going to possibly be in Demon Days Mariko, but will definitely be in that uh, following, in that September version. Um, I think it's Silk. She, she, that teaser, she was a spider character for sure. Uh, Silk is, I believe, a Korean-American character, so that would just make a lot of sense for her to put her in there. Uh, as for the variants, of course, Demon Days being, and Pichamoko being immensely popular, there are a lot of variants for this one. Uh, artists who, if you are, uh, you know, interested in their art, we have, uh, let's see, Sabine Rich, Mahmoud Asrar, Amanda Connor, J. Scott Campbell, David Mack, Guri Hiru, which is actually a really cute one if you check that one out, Jeffrey Verege, Rose Besh, Kale Nu, Zhu Orzu, and Jen Bartel, of course. And I, as always, apologize for the names that I slaughtered with my mispronunciations. <laughs> I am terrible with names. I, I apologize. I try. I swear I try. <laughs> Uh, but that is Demon Day's Mariko. Uh, it's obviously focusing on Mariko, who in regular X-Men and Marvel comics is the Red Samurai. She is the sister of the Silver Samurai, who, fun fact, is currently the one um, in charge of the, not Resurrection Protocols, but in charge of the, um, what do you call it? I guess Sacrifice. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the the... The, the sacrifice that you, you go and you fight. I, usually him, unless you choose somebody else. Uh, it was Apocalypse before him, but now Apocalypse is on Arako. I'm getting off base here. Um, but this is Mariko. It seems that Mariko has been raised Red Room style, potentially, by Black Widow. So it's a cool combination of characters, just like the last one was. And they're all going to be in their own kind of unique twists by um, Peach Fumoko. And I am really excited for all of that. Planet Size X-Men number one, I was very surprised to find out, isn't actually written by Jonathan Hickman. Remember, Hickman is still head of X. Um, he's still apparently the one who's, like, leading this era of X-Men. 
Um, and I assume telling all the others what to write. I don't know. Um, but he has taken kind of a back seat while he apparently <laughs> preps for their new event, which is coming this fall, Inferno. I've talked already so much about how excited I am. The fact that he has completely stepped back from writing in order to plan this event, like, that is, you, you couldn't give me a better sign that Inferno is gonna rock. <laughs> Um, but anyway, Planet Size X-Men number one, it's going to be written by Jerry Duggan. I'm sorry, Gary Duggan. There I go again with Pepe Larraz and Marte Garcia. Excuse me, Gracia. I, like I said, I'm the worst with names. <laughs> um, this, I, I, I have a little bit of mixed feelings about this because it has been marketed very poorly, um, in my opinion. It, it says... The, basically, the ad that they have for giant size or for planet size X Men number one is how uh, fifty years ago or whatever it was, giant size. Yeah, I think it was fifty years ago. Uh, giant size X Men number one changed our world, and then it says like now planet size X Men number one will change our universe or something like that. Um, for obvious reasons, that is quite a claim, <laughs> and I hate it when they make these claims because I feel like it only sets them up for failure. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be that would make things that, that would make this issue so important. I, I can't even imagine. Um, my previous theory, which I'm pretty sure is debunked as hell now, about mutants making immortality for everybody, um, the only reason I still cling to that very slightly is because I heard somebody else talk about it too. Um, but like way long ago. Um, I, it's, I don't think that's going to happen and I don't think that would be something that would rock the Marvel Universe in such a way that it would actually be a bigger deal than giant size X-Men, you know? I, 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 the, <laughs> part of the reason that giant size X-Men was a big deal was situationally, they were bringing in a lot of new stuff and that's not really what's happening here. There is no, there's no room for them to be bringing in new things like in a way that's going to rock the foundations. I just don't, I don't see it. And that is coming from me, an enormous Jonathan Hickman and an enormous, um, what are we in now? Reign of X fan. Um, I just don't see how this is going to be as big of a deal as they say it is. I really don't. Um, it's just it's just setting us up for disappointment. However, that does mean that if it does end up being really, really awesome, you know, I'm going to be even more mind blown because I'm going in here thinking that it's going to be nothing exciting. So hopefully, you know, nobody really falls for this marketing shtick that they've put in and ends up super disappointed. But we're all just going to have to wait and see what happens. It is part of a Hellfire Guile tie-in. We have a couple others of those this week that I'm going to be talking about later on. It's New Mutants and X-Corp. We'll get there when we get there. Um, but this Planet Size X-Men, I'm obviously going to get it. I'm obviously probably going to enjoy it, I'm sure. Um, but I don't... I don't see it being something that in 20, 30 years, you know, 50 years, whatever, is going to be worth thousands of dollars. Uh, stuff in the modern market just doesn't work that way because of the way that comics were back then and are now. It's just not something you that happens so much. But anyway, moving on to Luna number five. This is the final issue of Maria LaVey's Luna. 
Oh gosh, I read, I will get anything that Maria LaVey uh, has under her, you know, full creator title. This is written, drawn, colored, inked, everything by Maria LaVey. I think she even letters it, I'm not sure. Um, I, it's so much in the vein of what you would expect from her, too. Um, if you are familiar, the first thing of hers that I ever read, if you're familiar with it, was, um, oh gosh. It was, um, it was Faithless. <laughs> Rick Remender's Faithless took me a second. Um, and that was a great starting point to understanding or to getting used to or a feel for, um, what kind of things to expect from Maria LaVey. And obviously that was written by Rick Remender, um, but you get a feeling, especially after having read this other Maria LaVey written by work, you get a good feeling looking back that she probably had a lot of influence on the plot of Faithless. Um, it was, I, I can definitely look back and see it much more as a co-effort of both of them, as opposed to one writes and one draws. Um, look at just this, the style of everything, because just like Luna and just like Eros and Psyche and just like, I know there's another Maria LaVey series that's come out recently that I can't, I haven't found it, but I can't remember what it's called, so whatever. Um, it's all very, for lack of a better word, trippy. <laughs> um, and funky and weird and symbolic and mystical. Um, it's the kind of thing where, in a different sense than when I say this about writers like Jonathan Hickman and Tom King, um, you get, in a completely different way, Maria LaVey trickles you bits of information through the series and you have no idea what's happening. You can come up with theories and stuff, um, but especially at the beginning, you have no clue what's going on. You kind of have to build your way through the uh, symbolism and through the, you know, the, the undertones of what people say and things. You kind of have to come to the conclusion of what's happening on your own. And then by the time it gets to the end, they'll finally come out and confirm or, you know, tell you what it is that's actually going on. Um, and I love that. It's, it's, it's very different than, you know, King and, uh, Hickman because theirs is much more of a, like, higher level thinking, whereas Maria LaVey's, and I suppose Recommenders with her in Faithless, um, is very much more mystical, uh, for lack of a better word. I, I say that it's like a fourth time I've said that in this episode. I gotta stop. Um, <laughs> you ever get stuck on a phrase like that? Anyway. Um, so, so Luna has been chock full of artistic symbology and some symbolism. I don't think symbology is a word. Artistic symbolism and literary symbolism and literary devices and references to biblical texts and just, oh my gosh, it's so fun. Um, and her art fits the not convoluted, it fits the mystery and the um, mysticism of her writing very well in the same way that possibly Frank Miller's art fits the dark and gritty and kind of bashed around, <laughs> um, writing that he puts in for like Batman and stuff. So, uh, it, it fit, it had, it's a perfect fit. Um, she has developed a beautiful style in her writing and her 
art. And it's just absolutely one of my favorite things to come across is Maria LaVey comics. And Luna has been stunningly gorgeous, um, absolutely breathtaking in every way. The story is a ton of fun. <laughs> um, uh, not ever enough praise. I know she's getting tons of praise. I know there's a lot of people who don't understand what's going on. Welcome to Maria LaVey's comics. You'll get it by the end, I promise. If you don't, maybe just move somewhere else. Um, but, or just reread it. Because if you reread it, you'll probably get it a lot better than the first time. That's something else that happens in comics a lot. Go back to things that you don't understand or didn't understand sometime later, and you probably will have figured it out by then subconsciously or something. You know, you get what I'm saying, I hope. <laughs> um, in any case, this is the final issue of Luna, as I said, and I am just completely excited for it. Um... And I hope that we we continue to get more um, Maria LaVey and continue to get more indie comics that are written and drawn by the same person. Or a big two. I don't care. Um, I, I just love that. You get such a complete vision um, and such a accurate representation of what it is that they want to put on the page. Um, and that makes comics, in my opinion, just so, so good. Another really exciting one coming out. It's another number one. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number one. This is, um, I did mention Tom King briefly already in the podcast. He is working, he is writing this series alongside artist Bilquis Evely. Apologies for the name, Bilqui. Um, it's going to have rotating variant cover artists, which I adore. However, looking through the first couple, they're all dudes and I kind of hate that. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm really excited for this because this is the first time that I will be reading Tom King writing a primarily female series. Um, and because it looks like this is kind of going to be going in exactly the direction that I hoped when I first heard about it. Or rather, even let's go further back than that, exactly the direction that I hoped as like somebody me just wanting somebody to write a Supergirl story like what I won. And this feels like we haven't obviously read it yet, but this seems like it's going to be exactly that. Um, and what that is basically what I, what I want from Supergirl, I want her to be Superwoman. Obviously we had Superwoman, uh, or Kara, what was it? Kara Zarel Superwoman, I believe was what the, um, future state, duo of issues that she had, which was by Marguerite Savage and Marguerite Bennett, artist and writer. Um, oh my God, please get that. Stop. Just mind blowingly good. Um, but it's also something that was brought up in the first couple of episodes. Specifically, I remember it being the red tornado episode of Supergirl in the first season. Um, there is a lot of anger in Kara Zor-El that nobody ever addresses. Not nobody ever addresses, obviously, but that doesn't get addressed the way that it should be. Um, a lot of frustration um, and a lot of things that she's kind of just been stuck with because of her situation and that none of it is her fault and none of it is something that she ever wanted or ever thought that she would be in or have to deal with. Because remember, Kara Zorel was sent with her cousin off of Krypton to raise her baby cousin. Unfortunately, she arrived much later than him. Um, he was already grown, and uh, basically what she had spent much of her existence, assuming that her 
life was going to be about and her meaning was to raise her cousin and to you know save the race of kryptonians or whatever um be the last kryptonians i guess none of that none of that it was all immediately wiped away um and similar to how it was discussed in Batgirl number 50 by Cecil Castellucci, who I also adore. Um, Kara is often treated like a sidekick more than anything. Kind of, um, you're like you're able to switch her out with a number of female characters, like Batgirl and Spoiler and, you know, however many others that you want to put in there. Uh, they're, they're all kind of not, not necessarily expendable, although yes, they have been expended <laughs> many times, otherwise known as refrigerated. Um, but, but they, she, instead of being uh, the leader and the, the head honcho to, <laughs> to say, she ends up being the replaceable sidekick the little cousin who people pat on the head and say, okay, good job, Supergirl. And who is now a, what, in her 30s woman, probably? At least in her 20s, who they still call Supergirl. Girl! I have wanted them to call her Superwoman for so gosh darn long. I'm trying really hard on cuts in this episode. <laughs> um, I have wanted her- Why are we still calling her Supergirl? Invisible Girl got changed up to Invisible Woman decades ago. Because she grew up and Kara's grown up. Why? I hate it. Just like Hawk Girl. What the shit? Hawk Woman is the thing that makes sense. She is a woman. She is not a little girl. <sighs> but anyway. Um, all of these things come out to Kara being a character with so much room for frustration and um, just feeling like nobody takes her seriously because of her knowledge of what she is and who she is and versus everybody else's idea of what and who she is. Very different things for the most part. Um, so this series does seem to be kind of uh, hinting that it's going to touch on those things. Um, and that is just completely completely thrilling. Um, I'll go ahead and read you this. Oh, it's a bit of a long solicitation, so I apologize, but I really wanted to read it because um, I'm just, I'm just thrilled. And you kind of do get to see the, um, the, the, the strings of, or the seeds, I suppose, of what I'm talking about in this solicitation that will be in the comic. It says, Chapter 1, Men, Women, and Dogs. Kara Zorel has seen some epic adventures over the years, but finds her life without meaning or purpose. See what you mean? That's what my thing right there is. That's what I was saying. Here she is, a young woman who saw her planet destroyed and was sent to Earth to protect a baby cousin who ended up not needing her. What was it all for? That's, that's what I was saying. That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm... Wherever she goes, people only see her through the lens of Superman's fame. Just when Supergirl thinks she's had enough, everything changes. An alien girl sees her out for a vicious mission. Sees her out, seeks her out for a vicious mission. Her world has been destroyed, and the bad guys responsible are still out there. She wants revenge, and if Supergirl doesn't help her, she'll do it herself, whatever the cost. Now a Kryptonian, a dog, and an angry, heartbroken child head out into space on a journey that will shake the entire shake them to their very core. It is of eight issues. I thought it was going to be of nine, so they must have taken. I hope they didn't take one out. Um, 
unless it really wasn't needed. Uh, but this is also Crypto. <laughs> Crypto will super dog will be going along with her. And you can so clearly see the bones of what I was kind of talking about of wanting for a Supergirl series. My dream of how the series will end will be that Kara is officially changed to be Superwoman by name. That is how I, that is my dream ending of this series. And obviously, and this is, I'm sure you noticed the parallels between Kara's you know, situation and this young woman situation that she's going to be helping out. Uh, very poignant and uh, just can't get enough. I It hasn't even started and I'm and I'm this pumped for it. So this is going to be good stuff. <laughs> uh, Sonya Versal number five. I, this is, I, like, I, I, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Didn't know that it was going to be this good. But it is. Um, and I'm extremely pleased with that because it's so hard, it seems, to find so Red Sonia stuff that I really jam with. The current Red Sonia series I do not jam with, um, uh, <laughs> which I won't get into. Um, but this one I do. Sonia Versal being the wackiest, kookiest, you know, weirdness that they could have come up with, basically. <laughs> I love it. Um, and to make things even better, this is the final issue in this arc, but the story is going to go on for at least one other arc with the same creative team of Christopher Hastings writing it and Pascal Quilano, um drawing it. <laughs> really, really phenomenal. I'm so excited to find out that this is not the last issue. It's just the last issue in the arc and it will be going on for at least we can imagine four or five more issues. I don't know if it's going to be a limited series or if they're going to kind of do this as long as they can get away with it. Um, but I am digging it. And I'm really wondering, um, once this arc ends, what the next arc is going to be. Um, I know that the Devil Sonia is on the covers. They're, um, you know, pretty pretty standard covers for the guy who does them, Lucio Perillo. Um <laughs> So the nice, you know, seductive Devil Sonia covers, but but I wonder if we're going to be following a different Sonia, not Red Sonia, um, through the universe of Sonias, or just into whatever she does. I don't know. Uh, but we 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 are kind of seeing, I suppose, when I think about it now, the tiniest of bones. I keep saying bones. The tiniest of seeds being uh, planted for a potential other arc with Devil Sonia, because Devil Sonia has been mentioning that she is clearly fed up with. Um, everything that's been going on. And I'm realizing now how absolutely dumb I must sound to anybody who does not like the series. <laughs> but it's fine. You don't have to like it. I do. Uh, the last issue ended with the discovery that the uh, quote-unquote gods and goddesses <laughs> that the, the various Sonyas all worked for were all actually a the same space monster that went from universe to universe um, signed, basically signing them into a contract that they thought that they were a god and now it just feeds off of their energy of when they like kill somebody um, it's <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty kooky but they're headed off to uh, the moon to confront uh, what well it was to confront their god but then they found this out and then a different moon opens up and it's Moon Sonia. And that's what they're going to have to fight Moon Sonia before they like figure out how to end this battle royale they're in or whatever they're going to do to wrap up this arc. I don't know, but it's, 
It's kooky dooky fun. I kooky. I'm making stuff up now. Okay, moving on. Uh, stat. I don't do a lot of editing on this. Can you tell? Static Season 1, number one, is one that a lot of people are very excited for because this is Static Shock's return to the DC Universe through Milestone, which is the DC imprint that Static and a number of other characters originally came from, um, and now they have re-initiated Milestone into existence and are kicking it off with Static Shock series. Um, Static Shock is also apparently getting a show, if I recall, that uh, is involved, I think, produced potentially by Michael B. Jordan. Not entirely sure. He's involved somehow. Uh, but this Static, it's called season one for whatever reason. Maybe it's referring to something I don't understand. Um, but it is going to be written by Vita Ayala, who is a fabulous non-binary writer, um, uh, Afro-Latinx writer as well. Uh, so just perfect person to choose for this. Um, there's not a lot of Vita Ayala stuff that I read that I do not thoroughly enjoy. So, uh, really great news to have them on this. And the art is going to be crisscross with Nicholas Draper Levy or Ivy, I think. Um, <laughs> so check that out if you are a fan of Static or the Milestone imprint, because the better that the series does, the more likely we're going to get more stuff like this popping out of the workings as we go through time. Two indie books that are coming out this week that I they came out the same number one and now they're on the number twos is Time Before Time number two and Silver City number two. Um, they're both kind of in the same vein almost. They're incredibly different, but they kind of give me the same vibe of almost alternate reality stuff. So Time Before Time number two, it is a time travel dystopian comic. The <laughs> the first issue did a really really great job of setting up the sense of urgency as well as the lack of safety in this world because this is a world where time machines exist um, and I believe people from the future are pretty much uh, just stealing stuff from the past and the future or people who whoever has a time machine is going to whatever point in time they need to get what they want so they're stealing resources from throughout time and that's obviously causing a lot of problems um, we, we also had um the, the the dangers of time travel as well is that I suppose, I believe they said it was illegal. So if you get caught, you get trapped and arrested in whatever time you're in. Um, so something that happened in the first issue to kind of cement this whole idea of how it's dangerous and things can go really, really wrong really, really fast. Um, it was the lead character and his partner and his partner went, did, went back on a trip by himself and came back a little time later, it was like a couple of days or possibly a couple of hours later, as an old man dying in a wheelchair because he got caught and was arrested and held um, for decades back in whatever time it was that he went to until he finally was able to come back here. And what was even, it was, so he went to the future um, and I remember it's him saying that the future, whatever year that was, whatever century, has really good um, assistance, basically assisted suicide uh, pills, <laughs> um, where you take it and you go about your day. And then as soon as you go to bed at night, that's it. Um, and so then the old man, his buddy's like, hey, we can do something. We got we, we can fix you. And he's like, no, man, I've already taken the pill. I'm I'm done. I'm an old man. I've lived my life. I'm done. Um, so that was that was it 
an incredible thing to have read. Um, and then the issue ended with our lead character being crashed into a who knows when time uh, with a fugitive and no way to get back because that's why they crashed is because their time travel machine was destroyed upon landing or traveling. Either way, uh, things do not look good for them. Um, and I'm excited to kind of find out in the second issue where or when they have landed. Silver City, uh, that second one I was talking about, is a bit, uh, basically a purgatory comic. Um, the first issue was, um, you basically had a, a bunch of people, airport terminal, um, a plane, giant 747 style thingy on fire comes crashing through the terminal, everybody in the terminal dies, and they all wake up in, like, a train station, uh, which is their, like, check-in for purgatory. <laughs> um, so it was a really interesting concept. Um, I, I don't know, there's a lot left to be built. There's not a whole lot of plot that's been built, um, aside from this is now where this, the lead characters we're going to be following are. Uh, we have yet to see what they do or anything like that. Um, if you can hear noise in the background, I believe that's a helicopter. <laughs> you might not be able to hear it. Um, so either way, um, or in any, in any case, uh, this is something that, um, was kind of funny. <laughs> I distracted myself. It was kind of funny because, uh, my husband and I actually watched Tenet, the, uh, <laughs> there's so much I could say about Tenet, dude. Oh my God. Uh, a few days, and I'm not talking about liking it either. A few days, we, we watched Tenet a few days after I had read this issue and it was, um, it was super crazy because a uh, spoilers, I guess, but there was a scene that was so reminiscent from the comic, uh, but like from a different angle because it was a plane, uh, crashing into a terminal, a blaze. Um, I have no idea in Tenet what happened after that people died or what, I don't know, but in the comic, that's exactly what happened. And I just, you know, I thought it was kind of funny that same thing that happened in Tenet, which is not a movie. If you like to watch movies with your friends and kind of like point out the fallacies, watch Tenet. You will have so much fun. I promise. In addition to Planet Size X-Men number one, the two Dawn, or excuse me, the two Reign of X books that are coming out this week are New Mutants number 19 and X-Core number two. New Mutants number 19 is another Vita Ayala book. Um, they are just killing it with the New Mutants, uh, whatever it is that's going on in New Mutants right now, I guess, the plot. Um, and this issue, standard writer with Vita Ayala is Rod Reese, and this is actually going to be with um, Alex Linz instead of Rod Reese. So I'm hoping that uh, Rod Reese has, um, you know, he's able to do a lot of different styles, but the way that he kind of does his new mutant stuff is very much in the way that Bill Sinkovich did, um, or does rather he's still alive. Um, he's not actually not that old, but, um, but Rod Reese can kind of mimic the Sinkovich style for New Mutants very, very well, and he still does that on this run of New Mutants. So I'm kind of hoping that this Alex Linz person is a similar style artist. Um, potentially this is the person who designed the Hellfire Gala outfits, um, and I have to say the New Mutants Hellfire Gala outfits are my absolute least favorite of all of them. Um, I like Magic's horns, but the rest of the outfit doesn't make sense. 
Uh, I don't think anybody else looks any good. <laughs> um, so it's possible that that's who this Alex Lynn's person is, which is a little bit scary that the whole issue is going to be by them. But we'll, we'll see. I could be surprised and like it. <laughs> but I know it's still Vita Ayala writing it, so odds are I'm going to like it anyway. And like I said, it is a Hellfire Gala tie-in. All I want from this is just a lot of magic. She is, like, probably my favorite X-Men character alongside, like, Madeline Pryor. So, um, I just want a lot of magic in this issue and I'll be happy. We also have X-Core number two. This is by Teeny Howard with art by Alberto Foce and Sunny Go on colors. Sunny Go is often found on the X-Men stuff. I think Jonathan Hickman must really, really like his work. Um, or possibly just the editor, whoever the X-Men editor is. Uh, this x core is kind of the business corporate side of Krakoan mutant stuff, focused on the characters of Warren Worthington slash Angel and Monet St. Croix, I think it's St. Croix, uh, slash Penance. So if you like those characters, this will be definitely be one that you like. Um, and I imagine this is also going to be a Hellfire Gala tie-in as well, uh, so it's going to be a fun party-themed issue. All the Hellfire Gala tie-ins have all taken place at the party, um, just kind of seeing different perspectives at different times of the gala. Uh, I imagine until whenever it's over or something, and then we'll, we'll go back to things. Why well, I'm just saying lame things now. Okay, moving on. <laughs> the Many Deaths of Layla Star number three. This was a indie book that, as of the first couple of pages, I knew was something special. Uh, is by uh, writer Ram V and artist Filippi Andrade. Andrade? Um, again, I apologize. <laughs> um, so much good stuff. It is tying in, you know, Hindu gods and mythology in with the real world realities of the Indian caste system and. I just, I really enjoy it. The art is beautiful um, and so, so fitting. And the writing is shockingly mm, perfect. It's, it's so easy to read. I, I don't even know how to describe. It's flu It's smooth. It's so incredibly smooth and natural and flowing and, um, it, it just, it makes you want to read more and more of it, which is not how I've experienced Romby's writing at DC at all. So loving it. Absolutely loving it. Um, last issue had the, had, there was the death of, um, it was death who is Layla. She died again at the end of the last issue, um, by being drowned by the souls of the dead because they know who she was and she, you know, it's, it's kind of thing. Um, and it was about a very, very clever scene. That's a good word for the writing. It's very clever writing. Um, and now more time has gone by, uh, I think enough that the, the young boy who death was hunting down to kill because he's going to invent immortality. And that's why death got kicked out of heaven and is now in a human body because they don't need her anymore. But I'm bum. Um, that, that young boy I think has now grown up into a man, which ha will no doubt complicate things. Um, death had kind of assumed, oh, well, if he's older and he's not a baby, as he was in the beginning, um, then I'll want to kill him and I'll be fine with killing him and then I can go back to being death. Um, 
that's obviously not going to happen right away if it happens at all. And it's, there's going to be a lot more complications for um, Death slash Layla Star. And I'm, I, she must die at the end of every issue. That's my assumption. So this can only go on for so long because after a while it's going to be hundreds of years in the future and or just, her body won't be around. It just, it's a... Uh, um, I'm not sure how many issues this will be, but I am just thrilled. Over at Marvel, we have the Mighty Valkyries number three. Um, this is a comic that actually has three different stories going on on the inside. We have the first, which is Jane Foster dealing with um, the new Craven the Hunter, uh, and Moore, who is Moore is a name. Moore is Loki's kind of double-souled wolf son. He's two people, or they are two people living in one body who can transform from a person into a wolf, and I imagine probably other things too. Um, clearly has magical powers. Kind of tied into that plotline is the plotline for Carnilla, the wife of Hela, who for some reason is raising two magical stolen babies in a hidden oasis in hell. We have yet to find out why this is happening or what it's going to end up having to do with our two Valkyries who the other stories are following. Um, but I'm very curious. It's, it's They're doing a fantastic job of writing in a way that makes me extremely curious as to what she is up to and why she's doing this. Um, and obviously the reason that Moore helped her at all as we saw in the last issue, was for his freedom, or their freedom, I suppose. Um, so that's not too much of a mystery, but why? what is she doing? <laughs> Just wants to be a mom, but doesn't want Hela to be a mom? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and then the third plot line we have is Runa, who is the new Valkyrie, um, who was from one of the... She was from uh, Brunhilde's era of Valkyries, one of the original Valkyries. Um, she, on her plotline, she is trying to rescue the father of her former slash one and only true love, who was a Valkyrie herself, and the father man, the father figure here, he is an oracle. And so the planet who has him, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> does not want to let their oracle go. Uh, their entire planet industry is based around him. Um, tourism and everything. <laughs> so, uh, she is kind of fighting her way out of that. And like I said, there's clearly going to be some kind of connection between the Jane plot and the Runa plot to the Carnilla plot uh, with the two babies, but we have no idea why that's going to be yet. As for how long this series is going to be, um, not, a, not a damn clue. <laughs> um, I imagine six issues. They tend to kind of do things in those increments. Um, and I believe the Mighty Valkyries was six issues. It was either five or six issues, so it'll at least be five. Um, hoping for more. I really, really enjoy... Um, I, it's written by uh, Jason Aaron and... Oh boy. Trolling Robeck. I apologize for that mumbling because I couldn't figure out how to say your name. Um, <laughs> I, I You can't tell who writes what um, specifically. Um... But, but I really enjoy the pacing of this. Um, all three stories are paced very well, and they all seem to be headed in a direction that will combine them eventually. I just, I have no idea how they're going to end up being related. And I, it's kind of nice. It, it's kind of nice uh, having that open for a surprise. 
Home number three. This is an indie comic that I picked up uh, because it was gonna, it said it was about a um, migrant boy coming to America, being separated from his mother, and dealing with superpowers emerging. Uh, at this point in the series, he has escaped the detention center at the border. His mother has been sent back to, I believe they came from Guatemala. Um, I could be wrong on that. I'm just using my brain to memory to remember. Oh boy, words. Um, <laughs> the little boy has escaped the detention center and found his aunt who is in America in Texas. Um, and she seems to have a little bit of knowledge about whatever is going on with him and his powers and how that may have to do with how his father or why his father had been killed back home. Um, so there's, um, obviously a lot about the treatment of immigrants coming to America here that I don't need to explain. It's very obvious. Um, but there's also, I, I what was not really expected was this kind of additional plot development of um, how deep his powers are. It's not just, oh, he's developing powers. There's more to it. He's developing powers and they're connected to the murder of his father in their home country and why they had to flee their home country. So um, there's, a, there's a lot more plot here than I kind of originally thought or expected. And it's really good. Um, the art is really good and the way that the writer um, kind of handles the interactions between um, immigrants versus uh, border patrol and, you know, white people versus non-white people. It's it's all things that are uh, unfortunately accurate, but well handled in this comic. The Silver Coin is an anthology series by which I mean each issue is different. However, they are all, uh, uh, yes, drawn by creator of the series, Michael Walsh. They will follow um, different people who interact with this, I guess you could say, haunted silver coin and what happens when they interact with it. So uh, this week's, we had last week's, or last week, last month's was Kelly Thompson and uh, she did the writing and this month we have Ed Brisson doing the writing Let's go ahead and pull up the solicitation to see what it says about how the silver coin is going to be screwing with people this time. It says, after a home invasion goes bad, the mysterious coin helps its new owners outrun the law, but it's leading them down a much darker path. Um, obviously a ton of room there for this to be ridiculously creepy. Um, I like how the solicitation kind of gives you a really good idea of what to expect um but not really the full picture so you get more in the comic that's just solicitations i'm saying the obvious a lot um but if you really like horror stuff i definitely recommend getting the silver coin because it is 100 percent a horror comic um and i believe it was recently announced that it is actually going to be an ongoing comic they've gotten enough uh michael walsh is um willing enough i suppose and they have enough writers rotating and coming in often enough to keep it going for the foreseeable future so that's exciting uh, if you're a fan of the silver coin and if you're a fan of horror things definitely check that one out an indie comic that's starting out with a number one i believe this is from aftershock who has had a lot of uh, there's a lot of up and downs with the series that come from them um some are great and some i have not liked at all <laughs> uh seven swords number one is dealing with it kind of caught my attention because it's dealing with famous literary swashbucklers through 
uh, literary history, including seven of them, but the only ones that are revealed in the solicitation are Dantanyan. Dantanyan, I think that's how you say it. Uh, he is, of course, from uh, the Three Musketeers. He is the fourth Musketeer because it's actually four Musketeers. Don Juan, who is, of course, from Don Juan. Captain Blood, actually don't know who that one is. Sierra de Bergerac, who is, of course, from the play Sierra de Bergerac, and others. Um, that just sounds hilarious. Like I don't know if this is supposed to be a humorous comic, but if it is, I am in. <laughs> Um, never imagined that these characters shared a universe, but I guess it makes sense since a lot of them are French and Spanish. Um, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Uh, the writer, also something I wanted to note uh, more than the other creators, the writer is someone named Evan Daughtery, Darty, actually, um, who was the writer of many movies such as Snow White and the Huntsman, Divergent, and Tina, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So, take that information how you will. <laughs> Whether or not this will be a good series. I don't know if those are related to how his comic writing will be. We'll see. I'm just hoping this is going to be a funny adventure of ridiculous literary swashbucklers. But honestly, it could be just dumb. So we'll see. Then we have um, Catwoman number 32, which is another Rom V comic that I just, I, I, this one is one of the ones, the DC ones that I just don't, just not jamming with it much at all. <laughs> uh, but I would like to mention it uh, because it is, of course, going to have a Jenny Frizen variant cover, which is going to feature... Uh, the famous Jim Balant purple Catwoman suit. I absolutely adore her take on it. She is fabulous at drawing women's bodies, and Jim Balant was fabulous at designing costumes. <laughs> Not so much about the women's bodies part. But the combination of their talents here makes a fantastic cover. Uh, plus, it's a lot of purple and green and black and, like, neon stuff, so I just, I just dig it so much. And as a fun fact, if you're ever interested, if you have ever been interested in Jenny Frizen's process, how she does her comics, or rather her covers, is just her art in general, I suppose. She does digital inks, then she will print them out onto toned paper, render them into grayscale on the toned paper with, um, I believe, chalk and things. She will then scan that and put digital inks back over the uh, scanned inks because rendering tends to blow out line work and then she will do digital colors on top of all of that. So I think it's a really, it's kind of a complex process, but it's in my opinion, really impressive. Um, and that's is definitely how she gets that very recognizable style that we all know and love her for. While I, kind of have skipped the last couple of issues because I didn't really like them. Venom is on its final issue this week. It is issue number 200 in legacy numbering, 35 in regular numbering. If you're unfamiliar of what legacy numbering is for Marvel, that is when they go through and they count all of the comics that have been under this title. So this is all the Venom comics added up, come out to 200 issues. Um, so that's how they are kind of decided on that one. Um, this is the final issue by Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. Their run on Venom started in May of 2018. Um, and I, I have, I have opinions on, my husband and I have talked a lot about how it started and how it ended and how it seems to have two different visions. 
and potentially uh, King Black threw it off track of what the original vision was meant to be, but um, none of that's going to matter because this is the last issue by them. Uh, it's going to start up later again this year with Al Ewing. My bet is that more than likely he is going to um, retcon most of the stuff that Donny Cates is finishing this off with. Captain America Annual Number 1 is on my pull list. I honestly don't know if I'm going to buy it, though, uh, because it's an Infinite Destinies tie-in, but I have zero interest in what's actually happening in it. So, uh, kind of similar to the Iron Man Annual, which was an Infinite Destinies tie-in that I just slept through. Um, I don't expect anything from this. I don't care for Cap just pretty much as much as I don't care for Iron Man. But I want to find out what's happening with Infinite Destinies, specifically with Black Cat. So maybe I'll just skip this one and wait for a Black Cat one. <laughs> I don't know. If you're following Infinite Destinies, there's this, so do that. Fantastic Four number 33 is also on my pull list. Um, <laughs> it is the apparent marriage of Victor Von Doom to his daughter figure, Victorious. Um, the last issue by Dan Slott was an absolute travesty of poorly written, poorly characterized, and lazily plotted comic. Um, so let me just go through some of the bad things. Uh, a couple a couple of the two... two Okay, let's start here. Two of the major glaring critiques of the um, of various elements that were just extremely lazy and genuinely not good was one... Uh, the trope of women hating each other or competing with each other intensely because of the affection for a certain man. I'm sorry, this is not 1940s romance comics. We can move on from that terrible trope. Two, uh, the one world villain mantra. We literally just saw that in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I was already complaining about how it was overused then. Come on, man. Try a little harder. Um, and then other than that, I, other points about how this was terrible. In the past, Zora Zokova, who is victorious, was specifically characterized to care more about Latveria than Doom itself, saying that she would protect it at e any cost, even from Doom. She also is not Latverian herself, which was for some reason something that Slot kept referring to her being Latverian, as she, uh, in the last doom series she made that exact vow of protecting latveria from doom after doom had commanded her to kill her own mother who was a traitor from a neighboring uh enemy country and here in that issue dan slot had reduced her to a brainless bootlicker of doom who lives only to serve him which he practically had her say word for word um she was written completely brainless like a mindless fangirl uh, there was some weird scene of Johnny either getting in or out of her bed, which the art was so bad you couldn't honestly tell what was happening if he was getting in or out of her bed because there was no indication. You could not fucking tell. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, <laughs> I've been doing good until then. Um, it, it, that's pretty bad if you can't tell based on context clues from the writing or the art what the hell is happening in the series. That is really not good. Uh, and it doesn't match up with any of Zora's character development, if really either way. Um, and then also the whole Latveria needing a queen BS is not something that anybody has ever needed before. Um, Doom has already made the point of putting Victorious in charge of Latveria while he's gone, and that he didn't need to make her his wife for it, so what changed? Oh yeah, we have a creepy, creepy dude as a writer on this one. 
uh, got it. There are also other reasons to dislike that issue, such as, for some reason, um, I'm blinking on her name, but the Thing's wife, she was, like, brainwashing people or something? Or controlling? Mind-controlling? I don't know, but it was something that didn't make any sense for her character to be doing. Um, I am picking this issue up only to see what happens. I may just not do that. We'll see. Stillwater number eight is one that I am kind of collecting to read all together. Uh, I read the first couple of issues and they're really, really good. And I really, really recommend them. If you're a fan of Chip Zarsky, this is one of his indie series and it is drawn by Ramon Perez. And I, I really enjoy it. I'm saving a couple of issues at a time to read together. So I'm a little bit behind. Um, but it is a very unique story um, that takes you to a lot of really cool places. And finally... Finally, wrapping up the Calico Polis, we have Nightwing number 81, and I'm going to give you some spoilers here, so if you want to not hear the spoilers, skip about 10 seconds. Here's the spoilers. Apparently, we're going to meet Dick Grayson's sister. She may or may not be that villain on the cover. End of spoilers. And that's the comic book Polis. I have nothing else to say about Nightwing because I'm not keeping up with it. Um, I just wanted to mention that because it may end up being an important thing in comic book history. Who knows? I guess we'll just kind of have to wait and see. I did mention at the beginning that I would talk a little bit if we had time about Avengers Campus, and while I am going pretty much over... I don't know why I stress so much about how long I do this podcast for. Putting it out at all should be good enough, right? Whatever. Um, so just a little bit about Avengers Campus. I obviously haven't been there because of so many reasons, but I follow some people who have been there on the internet, um, and I can give you a little feedback, and what I pretty much have seen, it's a boatload of fun. If you do go, be prepared, like you can probably predict, to wait a very long time in lines to get in. Um, there are a couple of rides, it seems they all are kind of brief and just kind of like fun little kid rides, nothing too serious or too fast or anything like that. They have actors for pretty much all of the Avengers running around doing their um, doing their little thing. By the way, did you see there was the video, um, I think it was the day before they opened up Avengers Campus. It was Kevin Feige introducing Anthony Mackie as the real Captain America. Anthony Mackie coming out on stage holding the leather case with the shield in it from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier show and from the Avengers movies and whatnot. Um, and he comes out and he gives a little speech and then the cap, the, the, the Falcon, uh, Captain America actor dressed up as him, who's going to be playing him in the parks comes up and he hands him over the shield. Oh my God. I love that. I don't know if it was actually the shield from the movies or what, but that was so sweet. It was so cool to see that, um, then, then put that little bit of effort in. Anthony Mackie is obviously a fabulous human being. Um, and it was just, that was so heartwarming to watch that little, not really ceremony, but that little handoff uh, was very appropriate. Um, a couple of the fight scenes for the actors that you'll see would be Taskmaster and Black Widow, which is funny because that movie hasn't even come out yet. Um, there was uh, Loki and Thor. There was Spider-Man, who I'm pretty sure the actor for is an actual gymnast because he's a very squat dude. Um, and he does all kinds of crazy stuff. Apparently, they like throw him up into the air where you can see him flying, uh, like being flung across the rooftops of the buildings. 
Um, and then you don't even see where he lands, probably on some giant trampoline somewhere. A giant pile of pillows, I don't know. Um, but it all looks really good. The food, I've heard, is pretty good. Um, I think the best one that I've heard the most good things about is the, sh the chicken shawarma. There has been a lot of discussion about how there isn't any legitimate shawarma there. There's not any, like, gyros or anything like that. Gyros. Um... So that's somewhat disappointing, but you can kind of imagine that they probably did that because that's a whole other food group that they didn't have to start uh, cooking and things. While chicken is probably something that's already in their list of things to order for the week or for the day or whatever it is that Disney does for their food ordering. So um, just probably just keeping it a little bit easier and a little bit under control, a little bit more under control. Um, and that's just fine. I have also heard that the churros... Um, the Infinity Gauntlet Churro, right now it's a green one that they have, is apparently very mediocre. Um, I think maybe I would like it because it's possibly sour apple flavored and I like that kind of thing because I'm weird and like that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but I've heard, I've heard iffy things about it, much like the blue and green milk from the Star Wars land over at Disneyland. Um, it seems that the churros are a bit questionable up to your preference. But other than that, everything that I've seen food-wise... Um, has been really positive. That was my AC cutting on for a second. Um, but yeah, ever, other than that, everything seems really good. I am dying to try some of the snacks myself. Um, I'm not going to be going anytime soon. So if you guys go, please let me know how it goes for you because um, I will live vicariously through the people who can show up and that's just fine for the time being. That wraps up this week's Monday episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Uh, I will be back again this coming Friday, which is the 18th, where I'll be talking about this Wednesday's episode of Loki. It'll be episode two. Lots of things to discuss, I'm sure, because that show ended up being quite a bit better, or rather more interesting, than I, even I initially imagined. Um, that could just be my fault because I'm an idiot. <laughs> or a doubter. I don't know. But that's coming out the 16th. We'll talk about it on the 22B episode on the 18th, as well as the this week's comic books. Things that are going to be coming out tomorrow for DC on the 15th and for everything else on Wednesday the 16th. So be sure to pick up your comics this week and I can discuss them on Friday. Things that I find to be good or relevant or newsworthy in comics. Also coming on Friday, hopefully there wasn't really anything for it today because it was a slow weekend, I guess, with E3. Um, but I will be talking, hopefully, about whatever happens in pop culture news, um, MCU news, DCEU news, casting news, comics news, anything like that that I, I get a whiff of, uh, I will discuss also on the Friday 22B episode. Thank you again for listening to uh, my podcast in any form. I'm always happy to have any views at all um because this is really fun and wish me luck because i am applying to my local comic book shop as uh, an employee this week and um i'm kind of hoping this podcast will will help me get a leg up on the competition to get in there because that is obviously something that i would love to do um anyway have a fabulous weekend or shoot it's monday have a fabulous week it's gonna be very very hot where i am in the world so if you get sweaty about comics Remember to wear deodorant, because it's probably also pretty hot, and that could be part of why you're sweating. Just throwing that out there, because sweaty, getting sweaty about nerdy stuff, you can still stink from that too. So just remember to wear deodorant. Have a good one. <laughs>